If you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 21, and we will be covering Isaiah chapter 21 and 22. Just a side note, as we get ready to look at God's word, I was struck by Isaiah twenty-two fourteen. Isaiah says, the Lord of hosts has revealed himself in my ears. What a great way to think about the inspiration of scripture, that the Lord has revealed himself in our ears as we hear God's word and get to know who he is. And that's what we are striving to do as we look at Isaiah 21 and 22. Uh, It is widely agreed that one of the greatest songwriting duos of all time was that of John Lennon and Paul McCartney of the Beatles. And one of the hits that they gave us is a song called Getting Better. Uh, It provides kind of a fun look at these two guys' personalities and how they brought them to their songwriting. Uh, In the chorus, Paul McCartney sings a very optimistic, some optimistic lines. He says, I've got to admit it's getting better. It's getting better all the time. This rings with optimism. And then sort of in the background, you can't really hear it, John Lennon added his part to this chorus, and he says, can't get no worse. Sort of the uh, pessimism that he was bringing to the situation, well, it's getting better because it can't get any worse. We've reached the halfway point of the 10 oracles of Isaiah 13 through 23, and we may be hoping that with this second half, we can start to sing, it's getting better right? Because it, it feels like it can't get no worse. It's, it's just lots of judgment and lots of difficulty here. And yet, actually, as we read these oracles, the opposite seems to be true. These final five messages of judgment actually take us into deeper darkness and even more enigmatic and perplexing images. As a prophet, Isaiah spelled out the dark reality of God's judgment on all those who reject him. It was a a judgment that came in the form of conquering armies and natural disasters and other things, and it's a judgment that's still coming. Wickedness faces the justice of God in small doses now, and yet we know that one day all who reject him will drink the full cup of his wrath. Knowing that judgment is coming, we're, we're looking for something to hold on to. We're looking for a, a foundation to stand on. It's as if we're sort of wading into the ocean. I don't know if you've ever done this. You're walking into the ocean and you see a, a wave coming at you. Big or small, there's a wave coming. And so you, you brace yourself for impact. You either turn your back or you stand firm or you look for someone or something to, to grab a hold of. And the question as we look at God's judgment coming at us is what are we going to hold on to? What foundation are we going to stand on? These chapters, as we have seen, and and chapters 21 and 22 are really no different. They help us to see what we should not hold on to. They help us to see that ruthless honesty about the weakness of ourselves and others leads us to trust in the one who will never fail. Ruthless honesty about the weakness of ourselves and others leads us to trust in the one who will never fail. A little long, so I'll say it a third time so it can, for those of you that are trying to write that down. Ruthless honesty about the weakness of ourselves and others leads us 
to trust in the one who will never fail. Because we need to make sure that we have a firm foundation. We need to make sure that we're building on something that will stand firm. My brother-in-law and my sister recently built a house and they kept having to have people re-pour the foundation and because angles were not right and things were not done the way they were supposed to. And it had to be done right because if the foundation isn't right, then everything else is going to crumble underneath it. And so we need to know what we're, being, what we're building our lives on. We need to be ruthlessly honest about the things that are not worth building our lives on. And yet again, Isaiah is driving us away from the things that will only lead to us falling on our faces and then drowning in God's wrath so that we can find refuge in him alone. I want to start by reading um, chapter 21, and then we're going to eventually get to the oracle against Judah in chapter 22. But before I read, let me give you some context and maybe a simple outline so we can understand this this chapter. Um, First of all, here is a um, here's a map. This is a, a map of the nations that the oracles of chapters 13 through 23 are against. I probably should have showed this the first time we looked at the oracles, but the most obvious thing that you can see from this is that the, the nations that the oracles are against surround Israel. It's, it's God showing all the nations around Israel, around Judah, and pronounces oracles against them. These are the nations that they either were their enemies or were the temptations for them to trust. And so God is speaking to all of the people around them. And And in these oracles, we're specifically in chapter 21, there's an oracle against Babylon. Uh, You can see Babylon over here uh, to the east. Babylon, you remember we read an oracle against Babylon in chapters 13 and and 14. Babylon is called by this mysterious name, the desert by the sea in verse 1, but her identity is made clear in verse 9, you'll see that. The second oracle against Babylon is linked to two more in chapter 21. One is against Duma, you can see Duma is Edom down here, Seir or or Duma. And the second is Arabia in verses 13 through 15. Duma's in verses 11 through 12 of chapter 21. So remember that Assyria is is the the major force in this day. Uh, And Assyria is the the nation that everyone is trying to to fight against and and defend against. And these uh, Duma and Arabia are sort of tribes in the, in the desert who were in an apparent alliance with Babylon against Assyria. And yet their future is described here as just one of being filled with refugees of war that were fleeing from Babylon and its destruction. So as we read, you're going to see three oracles, one against Babylon, one against Duma, and one against Arabia. And then in verses 16 and 17, we're gonna, they provide a conclusion to all three of these oracles. And they're showing us that we need to be ruth, that ruthless honesty about the weakness of ourselves and others leads us to trust in the one who will never fail. So let's read Isaiah chapter 21, and we'll read the whole chapter. The oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea. As whirlwinds in the Negeb sweep on, it comes from the wilderness, from a terrible land. A stern vision is told to me. The traitor betrays and the destroyer destroys. Go up, O Elam, lay siege, O Media. All the sighing she has caused, I bring to an end. 
Isaiah speaks here in verses 3 and 4. Therefore, my loins are filled with anguish. Pangs have seized me like the pangs of a woman in labor. I am bowed down so that I cannot hear. I am dismayed so that I cannot see. My heart staggers. Horror has appalled me. The twilight I longed for has been turned for me into trembling. They prepared the table. They spread the rugs. They eat. They drink. Arise, O princes, oil the shield. For thus the Lord said to me, Go, set a watchman. Let him announce what he sees. When he sees riders, horsemen in pairs, riders on donkeys, riders on camels, let him listen diligently, very diligently. Then he who saw cried out, Upon a watchtower I stand, O Lord, continually by day, and at my post I am stationed whole nights. And behold, here come riders, horsemen in pairs. And he answered, Fallen, fallen is Babylon, and all the carved images of her gods he has shattered to the ground. O my threshed and winnowed one, what I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I announce to you. The oracle concerning Duma. One is calling to me from Seir. Watchman, what time of the night? Watchman, what time of the night? The watchman says, morning comes, and also the night. If you will inquire, inquire. Come back again. The oracle concerning Arabia. In thickets in Arabia you will lodge, O caravans of the Danites. To the thirsty bring water. Meet the fugitive with bread, O inhabitants of the land of Tima. For they have fled from the swords, from the drawn sword, from the bent bow, and from the press of battle. For thus the Lord said to me, within a year, according to the years of a hired worker, all the glory of Kedar will come to an end. And the remainder of the archers of the mighty men of the sons of Kedar will be few. For the Lord, the God of Israel, has spoken. Let's begin by thinking about the oracle against Babylon. And then we'll think about Duma and Arabia. And let's think about it in terms of three pictures. Three images that that speak to what God's judgment looks like in the present and in the the future. Three pictures that will help us be ruthlessly honest about the things that we might trust in. The first then is Babylon. And Babylon is a picture of this, that the wicked are a fallen city. The wicked are a fallen city. Uh, Motyer says about this oracle that it plays the same role in relation to Babylon as Chapter 19, verses 1 through 15 does in relation to the Egyptian alliance, stressing the pointlessness, even in political terms, of an alliance with a doomed cause. In in other words, like Egypt, Babylon is going to be of no help to anyone because they too are going to fall by the hand of the Lord. Verses 1 and 2 describe Babylon's coming destruction first through the picture of this whirlwind and then in the reality of coming armies that would bring Babylon to an end. And the vision is so striking that Isaiah is physically ill in verses 3 and 4. He says his body aches like a woman in labor, and the pain is so strong that he can't hear. It's interesting too, because he says in verse 4 that this is something that he has longed for. The destruction of Judah's enemies was something that he wanted to happen. And yet now that it's arrived, he trembles at the vision of it. 
We've seen this before. Isaiah reminds us that God is a just and righteous God who must punish sin, but he's also a gracious and compassionate God that does not rejoice in the death of the wicked. And as we image God in this world, we have to find that same balance. A a longing for the day of the Lord and for the end of sin and for the destruction of all the enemies of, of of righteousness. But with that, we also carry this realization that in some ways, we really don't know what we're asking for. And were we to see the judgment coming, we would be sick to our stomachs. And so we also strive to have hearts that, that long for repentance just as much, if not more than we long for judgment. But what follows Isaiah's anguish in verses 3 and 4 is a description of the fall of Babylon, though there's little consensus about a specific historical event being referred to. What we see, however, is that Bab- is Babylon's well-documented pride. Verse 5, they're, they're feasting and they're boasting. And yet the watchman of the tower sees this approaching army in verse 6. And then there's finally that chilling outcry in verse 9. Fallen, fallen is Babylon and all the carved images of her gods he has shattered to the ground. The great city of Babylon and all her idols would be shattered and reduced to rubble. Even today, when you think about Babylon... It's a city that exists primarily in history books and museums. It's gone. It's important to remember in reading this oracle, though, that it was not intended primarily for Babylon's ears, but for Judah's ears. Verse 10 seems to be a a word um, from Isaiah to the people of God who were tempted to trust in a place like Babylon and reminds them in their own weakness that even the great city of Babylon would one day fall. For we who, we don't have any fear, I don't have any fear of Babylon right now coming to attack us. Um, And and so this oracle could actually, it could mean absolutely nothing to us, right? Babylon is not going to come and destroy any of our homes. But it does speak to us because it speaks of this wider destruction of everything that Babylon represented. Babylon, we've seen in the Bible, is shorthand for all human pride and wickedness that's sent against God. And so this oracle tells us that there's a, there's a day coming when God's patience and his long-suffering will end and all the Babylons of the world are going to be destroyed. I think this is what John picks up on. It, if you heard the reading from Revelation 18, it's, it's so parallel to what's happening here in Isaiah 21 verses 1 through 10. Reading that chapter in Revelation 18, we might be tempted to try to take a guess at, at to, as to who Babylon is in the modern day, but I think that would be a mistake. I think rather that Babylon stands in Revelation 18 as a representation of all immorality. Babylon embodies wickedness. It embodies sexual sin and unjust power and excessive luxury that harms the poor. It encapsulates war and death. According to to Revelation Revelation 18, Babylon looks so glorious in the present, doesn't it? Those in her eat delicacies. They're clothed in the finest of clothes. We see that today. You might turn on the Oscars tonight and see a little bit of Babylon. Then you want to be there. Looks luxurious. Looks beautiful. You might go to the halls of governments around the world. You might find Babylon there. Looks beautiful. But Babylon's not just in these beautiful places. Babylon's also in 
the back alleys and the dark corners of the world. Babylon's in the hidden persecution of the followers of Jesus. Babylon's in those that buy and sell human beings for their own pleasure. Babylon is found in those who care more about their bottom line than the good of others. Babylon is at the heart of the exploitation of women and children. She's in the backroom deals that short-circuit justice, and she's in the self-preserving political gains that divide us and sear our consciousness. And our hope is that one day, Babylon and everything that she stands for is coming down, is falling. Both Isaiah 21 and Revelation 18, that it's gonna happen in less than an hour. I don't know if that's literal, but what it means is it's not gonna take long for God to destroy Babylon when he decides to. Centuries and millennia of building up human pride will be reduced to rubble in 60 minutes. That's all it's gonna take. And that kind of destruction could make us tremble as Isaiah did at the vision that he saw. To ache at the thought of the day of the Lord that's coming. But as we saw in Revelation 18.20, you know what else we're supposed to do? Rejoice. It commands us. Revelation 18.20 says, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. One day Babylon is going to fall and never be rebuilt again. And that's something that we are to rejoice at. We're to find joy in the fact that wickedness and pride set against God is one day going to be wiped off the face of the earth forever. This fallen and falling city is nothing that we should trust in. I wanna encourage you, my heart and your heart both, Don't be tempted to think about the apparently powerful and beautiful and luxurious things in this day. Don't be be tempted to to trust in them. Don't be tempted to think that they're going to win in the end. Don't be drawn away from faith into the powers of of power and, and sex and money. These things are all going to fall. They will come crashing down in the end. They look luxurious but they will fall. Fall and fallen is Babylon the great and all of her carved images will be shattered to the ground. The oracle against Babylon shows us that the wicked are like a fallen city. And for Isaiah and for Judah and for God's children in all generations, that reality brings rejoicing and it brings anguish. But it's also something that we're still waiting for. And that takes us, I think, to this second picture found in this poetic oracle against Duma, and it's this, the present world is a dark and silent desert. The present world is a dark and silent desert. I've never been in a dark and silent desert. I don't think I want to be. Duma, it literally means silence. That's what that word means. And, and it, that's, that creates the right mood for this oracle because it describes this lone person from the wilderness of Seir or from Edom. And twice he comes to the watchman and says, what, what time of night is it? It's a question about wh- when is morning finally going to come? When is the darkness going to be lifted? How much longer do we have to wait? We all know the feeling of a, of a restless night, of waking up at 2 a.m. and then waking up at 3 a.m., and then waking up at 3.30 a.m., 
and then waking up at 3.45 a.m. And at some point, you just want morning to come. I don't want to lay here any longer. I'm tired of the darkness. And the nations feel the, the unrest of all this, these rising and falling kingdoms of wars and rumors of wars. And they ask the question that's posed throughout Scripture. They say, how long? How long is the darkness going to last? How long is Babylon and wickedness going to reign? How long until the sun rises? And the response of verse 12 is that morning is coming, but not yet. Verse 12 offers hope, but it also says that before the hope arrives, the darkness will increase. Morning comes and also the night. Come back later and ask me again. God's going to make all things clear one day. We'll understand it better by and by. But for now, there's a lot of silence and the darkness and the barrenness and the silence of the desert of this world is going to persist. And I think this indicates it's even going to increase. But like a, like a car trip, you, you want to know when the end is coming, right? How much further, how, how long till we get to the end, how long till we get to the destination. It's also good to know when the morning is coming. And the coming of Jesus as the light of the world makes us even more sure that, that light is coming. The morning is coming, that, that light has broken into this world. There's hope of salvation because of Jesus because of his death that has conquered the darkness of sin. But it's also helpful to know what time of night it is. It's good to know that in this world, it's going to get darker before it gets light. We need to know that. That a final judgment is still future. The sun will rise and the sun will return, but it's going to get darker first. I was thinking, I was thinking back to when we studied the life of Joseph and we talked about him having an honest faith at the end of his life. And, and an honest faith avoids two pitfalls. The first is naive optimism. If you want to have an honest faith, you can't have a naive optimism. By which I, I mean simply trying to look on the bright side of life. Or just putting a positive spin on everything. It's the voice that says, it's getting better all the time. It's, it's Pollyanna. We need to avoid naive optimism. But we also have to avoid cynical pessimism. Cynical pessimism, that's a, a doom and gloom spirit that assumes the worst about everything. It's the voice that says it can't get no worse. It's, it's Eeyore. It's this spirit of pessimism. And instead, Isaiah, I think, is calling us to an honest faith in the night of the world. To look at the darkness of the world and to realize that it, it may actually get gloomier while simultaneously knowing that morning is coming. A morning is coming when all the shadows of death will be gone. That we are to live as, as children of light and joy in a world that's descending into darkness and death. It's a difficult balance, but I think this already not yet of the kingdom helps us to live in that. To be honest about the darkness around us, but also to relentlessly look for the light in the world. So we see a fallen city. We see a silent and dark desert. Briefly in verses 13 through 15, the pictures of a faithless, uh, of, that the faithless live in a wartime refugee camp. The faithless live in a wartime refugee camp. Uh, the image here seems to be of those fleeing from the destruction of Babylon and they're flooding south into Arabia and they're looking for refuge. Notice they're, they're not going to Zion. They're not going to the Lord. We saw people going to Zion. You remember 
that back um, Moab was supposed to go to Zion and seek refuge, but they're not even going there. They instead just go south. They go to Arabia. And we find that there can be some comfort in the present age provided by the comforts of this world, by the common grace of all people. But these things will not last. They will be overwhelmed in the end. Just, and just like a, a refugee camp is, is nothing like a permanent hold, a home that worldly refugees uh, will never, um, these things will never fill us. They will never save us, the, the comforts of this world. This, the summary, the, the conclusion in verses 16 and 17 basically just tell us that the end will certainly come. It's a note that says the end will certainly come. The destruction of Babylon then and the future destruction of all who reject God and do not seek refuge in Jesus will definitely come and it's going to come swiftly. And we know it's going to happen because the last part of that verse, verse, 20, verse 17, for the Lord the God of Israel has spoken. In the movie, The Wizard of Oz, when people try to argue with the wizard, he responds to them forcefully and he says, the great and powerful Oz has spoken. He's trying to say that I have said this and my word is final. Because I've said it, this is what's going to happen. In a similar way, I thought about uh, Cecil B. DeMille's Ten Commandments and Pharaoh multiple times. He makes decrees and commands and then he says, so let it be written, so let it be done. And it's, it's this idea, these, these powerful figures, they want those that hear them to, to think that their words have power, that what they say will happen. Of course, if you know those movies, you know that the wizard is exposed as a fool, and you know that Ramses can't hold back the Red Sea when it returns back to its place. In fact, it's only the Lord God Almighty who can announce that because he has said something, it will most certainly happen. Babylon will fall. Darkness will increase. Refugees will flee to the desert. He will judge the wicked in righteousness in his perfect timing, and nothing can or will stop him. The end is coming. It will most certainly come. So where is our hope? Where is the hope that we have? Where's the hope of our friends and our neighbors? Is it in a city that's going to fall? Is it in a dark and silent desert? Is it in a refugee camp? Or is it in the sovereign Lord? We know the nations rejected the Lord as their only refuge, but what about God's people? Where is their hope? As with the first set of five oracles, the fourth oracle in this second series is to the people of God. And chapter 22 sadly reveals that they were no different than the nations, which is why judgment was coming on them as well. There was a remnant that, that always remained and held fast to the Lord, but they're not even mentioned here in this oracle in chapter 22. Instead, we see Jerusalem and the people of Judah trusting in their own strength and ingenuity and trusting in human leaders. In verses 1 through 14, the oracle focuses on Jerusalem as a whole. And then verses 15 through 25 talks about two leaders, a guy named Shebna and a guy named Eliakim. And these were people Israel was tempted to trust. I want to read Isaiah 22, these 25 verses. So if you still have your Bible open, let's read Isaiah 22. This is uh, to to Judah and to Jerusalem. The oracle concerning the valley of vision. 
What do you mean that you have gone up, all of you, to the housetops, you who are full of shouting, tumultuous city, exultant town? Your slain are not slain with the sword or dead in battle. All your leaders have fled together. Without the bow, they were captured. All of you were found and were found were all of you who were found were captured though they had fled far away. Therefore I said, look away from me. Let me weep bitter tears. Do not labor to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. For the Lord God of hosts has a day of tumult and trampling and confusion in the valley of vision, a battering down of walls and a shouting to the mountains. And Elam bore the quiver with chariots and horsemen and Kerr uncovered the shield. Your choicest valleys were full of chariots and the horsemen took their stand at the gates. He has taken away the covering of Judah. In that day, you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest, and you saw that the branches of the city of David were many. You collected the waters of the lower pool, and you counted the houses of Jerusalem, and you broke down the houses to fortify the wall. You made a reservoir between the two walls for the city of the old pool. But you did not look to him who did it, or see him who planned it long ago. In that day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for baldness and wearing sackcloth. And behold, joy and gladness, killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. The Lord of hosts has revealed himself in my ears. Surely this iniquity iniquity will not be atoned for until you die, says the Lord God of hosts. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, come, go to this steward, to Shebna, who is over the household, and say to him, what have you to do here? And whom have you here that you have cut out here a tomb for yourself? You who cut out a tomb on the height and carve a dwelling for yourself in the rock. Behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently, O you strong man. He will seize firm hold of you and whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball into a wide land. There you shall die, and there shall be your glorious chariots, you shame of your master's house. I will thrust you from your office, and you will be pulled down from your station. In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe, and I will bind your sash on him, and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open, and none shall shut and he shall shut and none shall open. And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. And they will hang on him the whole honor of his father's house, the offspring and issue, every small vessel from the cups to all the flagons. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way, and it will be cut down and fall and the load that was on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. Uh, the overall feel of these verses, especially verses 1 through 14, is of a city who is, is blind. Uh, Jerusalem is called the Valley of Vision. But Jerusalem wasn't a valley. Jerusalem was a mountain. And it wasn't a place of vision anymore. It was a place where no one was seeing, seeing clearly. Seems like an ironic title, actually. In fact, the the city is full of rejoicing and feasting when, in fact, destruction was coming upon them from the nations. And they're feasting. And the chilling statement of verse 14 reveals that they will be punished for their wickedness, surely. Again, the, the surety of this judgment is spelled out by the fact that the Lord has spoken, verse 14, and also, um, 
verse 25 speak to that end. Isaiah saw things clearly. Verse four, we see his emotions again. He weeps over the destruction of God's people. Within this first part of the chapter, I think verses eight through 11 are really helpful. They reveal that Judah was trusting in their own strength and ingenuity for salvation. And therefore they help us to evaluate whether or not our strength and ingenuity can save us in the last day. So if you're, if you're writing notes, you might just write strength and ingenuity. Can that save us? Can strength and ingenuity save us? That's verses one through 14. Uh, Isaiah is clear that, that Jerusalem is hoping not in the Lord, but they're hoping in weapons. They're hoping in a protected water supply in case of siege. And they're hoping in walls, which they're tearing down people's houses so they can build bigger walls to, to help them. Uh, so weapons, water, and walls. Uh, the passage begins with Israel looking around and seeing. They, they look, around, look to themselves and their strategies for fighting off their enemies. The beginning of verse 11 probably refers to something called Hezekiah's tunnel, which provided uh, water into the city, kept, protected their, their water supply, and it survives still today. This is, this is Hezekiah's tunnel. You can go see it in Jerusalem. Here's a random kid from the internet in Hezekiah's tunnel, if you were curious how big it is, or kids, if you want to think about what it would be like. He's standing in water. It brought the the water supply, and it was an amazing feat of engineering. A poor source of hope, though. Uh, Verse 11, then, is the rebuke that comes. The Lord rebukes them because they're looking to weapons, they're looking to walls, they're looking to water, but they don't look to the Lord to the sovereign one who had planned it. As I thought about that, I thought about how the technology and abilities that we have in this age are pretty unmatched. And the temptation to trust in them is sometimes hard to even recognize. Not only that, but sometimes it's hard to distinguish when we're trusting in something more than God and when we're simply being wise. You might think about going to the doctor. There are those who say that you shouldn't go to the doctor or take medication. Um, that to do that is a lack of faith or it's, it's trusting in something other than God. We reject that. I reject that completely. But I also reject the idea that science or medicine is our ultimate savior. Uh, we can eat well. We can take medication. We can exercise. We can have surgery. We can do all of that. But that's not our hope. We have to do all of those things in a way that honors God as our true hope, that sees the blessings of good medicine and skilled medical professionals as a means of his grace, as an extension of of his goodness, that that's not what we're hoping in. The problem, especially with something like that, is that fear can pull us away from that kind of trust. Think about this coronavirus that's plaguing the world right now. Suddenly our hope moves from being in the Lord to being in a surgical mask. This will protect me. Quarantine people, that's what's going to protect us. We no longer see these things as wisdom, which they are. We need to do these things. But if they move from being wisdom to be our, being our ultimate hope, then we're just like Judah was in this day. If there are hope for our, not just for ourselves, but for our loved ones, then we are trusting in the wrong thing. Our own strength, our own ingenuity. These are weak foundations. Be wise, but trust the Lord. Similarly, we might hope in our savings account. You might hope in your 401k or the reserves that you have in your bank account. Is saving money a bad thing? Certainly not. It's wise, but it's an inadequate savior. Our future security is not ultimately tied to how much money we have in the bank. 
but to God's good pleasure. And even looking to the last day, we know money is of no value in the next age. I invite you to think about all these refuges. Computers can become functional saviors. Our skills and abilities can become them. We begin to trust our cars or our schedule or our morning cup of coffee or any number of things more than we trust the Lord. These things aren't bad, especially coffee. Uh, but they're, they're not our hope, right? They will fail us in the end. We should instead look to the one who rules over the world, the one who plans all things from long ago. Be careful of trusting in your own strength or in the ingenuity of yourself and others. In addition to strength and ingenuity, Judah was hoping in human leaders. That's another pitfall for us, trusting in human leaders. Verses 15 through 25 describe two opposite leaders with very little in common, Uh, little other than the fact that neither of them could save their people in the end. Uh, They recall Isaiah 2.22. You remember what Isaiah says there? Stop trusting in man, in whom is the breath of life. Shebna's the first guy. He was a leader who trusted himself too much. Shebna trusted himself too much. One commentator said of Shebna, it said, he was individually what the nation was collectively, meaning he was wedded to present satisfactions and self-confident in the face of the future. Wedded to present satisfactions and self-confident in the face of the future. If you read those verses, what was his great occupation? What was he consumed with? Building his tomb. How ironic. He wanted to build a tomb high up on the mountain so that everyone would remember how great he was. Isn't that ironic? This man who understood his own mortality and yet was trusting in himself and telling others to trust in him. He says to us biblically, don't think more highly of yourselves than you ought to think. And colloquially, he says, don't believe your own press. We all are leaders in different ways. We all serve and we help others, whether in our jobs or in our homes and in other areas as parents or siblings or aunts and uncles or any number of leadership places. We're helping others, but we can save no one. And we don't live for our own name. We don't live so that some monument will be erected to us in the last day. Any security that we offer to others is rooted in the Lord. He is our hope. He is the hope for everyone. You and I, we can be used by God. We are not the hope for anyone. You're not the hope for your kids. You're not the hope for your workplace. You're not the hope for your friends. You can help them by pointing them to the Lord, but you are not their ultimate hope. If Shebna trusted himself too much, then Eliakim was a leader that the people trusted too much. He was a strong leader. He was blessed by the Lord. But his family and the people around him seemed to pin all their hopes on him. God says that that he made him like a peg in a secure place. He He was like a hook that you hang things on. The problem is that Judah started to hang all their hopes on him and they forsook the Lord. Maybe you can picture a hook that you have in your house and it's up on the wall. And you just start hanging things on it in your mind. And just keep hanging more things on it. And you just keep hanging things on this hook. And all of a sudden, what's going to happen? It's going to rip right out of the wall. Because it can't hold everything. And Eliakim, no matter how good he was, he could not hold all of the hopes 
of Judah. He failed. It says, if, according to verse 25, he failed because of his own weakness, but also because the Lord cut him off. The people had put their hope in Eliakim, and God said, you're putting your hope in him? I'm cutting him off. So you realize that he's not the one you should hope in. Brothers and sisters, we have to beware of trusting human leaders too much. We've seen all too readily that they will fail us in the end. There's no human leader, whether in the church, in the world, in the government, in your workplace, anywhere you might think about. There's no human leader that can be a sure and steady refuge. There's no human leader you can hang all your hopes on. So what are God's people supposed to do? If they're not going to trust their own strength and ingenuity, they're not going to trust human leaders, what are they supposed to do? They're supposed to repent and believe. It's very simple. It's the same message of the gospel. They're supposed to repent and believe. Repentance, verse 12 says that that weeping and mourning over sin is what God had called for. But what were they doing instead? They were rejoicing in present pleasures. They were eating and drinking. Instead, they should have repented, just as we all need to do constantly. What does repentance look like? It shows up in our minds. In our minds, we must see the foolishness of the things that we are trusting in. In our hearts, we must hate them. And then with our wills, we turn from them. And that's what repentance looks like. It starts in our minds, it moves to our affections, and then it, it motivates our wills. And as we turn in repentance, the flip side of that coin is that we trust the Lord. We believe And believing involves the mind, the heart, and the will too. That's what verse 11 reminds us of, that that we're not to look at everything else. We're supposed to look at the only one who can save us. It happens in our minds. We understand that God is our only safe refuge. He's the only one we can hope in. And then with our hearts, we see the beauty of Christ and what he has done. And then with our wills, we cast ourselves on him. And he saves us. They were trying to do all this stuff, trusting in wills and water and and trusting in weapons and and walls, trusting in human leaders, and all they were supposed to do was repent and believe. And that's what we do our whole lives. Babylon can't save you, nor can any worldly power. And optimism can't save you, because no matter how positive your thinking might be, judgment is going to come in the end. Common grace, it offers some comfort to us, but it's not the same as saving grace in Christ. Our own strength and ingenuity will never be enough. And no human being is strong enough to save us in the end. Only Jesus, only Jesus, the God-man, is a sufficient Savior. On Christ who, who died for our sin, only Christ who, who died for all of our sinful rebellion, only he can save us. Only Jesus who fulfilled all righteousness can make us right before the Father. Jesus is the city that will never fall. Jesus is the city that you can run into and find refuge. He is Mount Zion that will stand firm to the end. Jesus is the one who will bring light into our dark and silent desert. Jesus is the one who's preparing a place for us, not a refugee camp, but a home, a home that we're all homesick for. Jesus Jesus, who alone is mighty, who alone is the very wisdom of God, he is the only one who can save you. And he's the only one that we deserve to worship, that, we sh- that deserves our worship and our praise. And when we trust in him, we're worshiping him, we're honoring him as the eternal savior of the world. Trust in Christ, repent and believe and continue to hang all your hopes on him. 
He's the only one that can hold them.